The reading is from 2 Kings chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Go away with your family and stay for a while wherever you can, because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. The woman proceeded to do as the man of God said. She and her family went away and stayed in the land of the Philistines for seven years. At the end of the seven years, she came back from the land of the Philistines and went to appeal to the king for her house and land. The king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, and had said, Tell me about all the great things Elisha has done. Just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came in to appeal to the king for her house and land. Gehazi said, This is the woman, my lord the king, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. The king asked the woman about it, and she told him. Then he assigned an official to her case and said to him, Give back everything that belonged to her, including all the income from her land, from the day she left the country till now. Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was ill. When the king was told, The man of God has come all the way up here, he said to Hazael, Take a gift with you and go and meet the man of God. Consult the Lord through him. Ask him, Will I recover from this illness? Hazael went to meet Elisha, taking with him as a gift 40 camel loads of all the finest wares of Damascus. He went in and stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to ask, Will I recover from this illness? Elisha answered, Go and say to him, You will certainly recover. Nevertheless, the Lord has revealed to me that he will in fact die. He stared at him with a fixed gaze until Hezael was embarrassed. Then the man of God began to weep. Why is my Lord weeping? asked Hezael. Because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites, he answered. You will set fire to their fortified places, kill their young men with the sword, dash their little children to the ground and rip open their pregnant woman. Hezael said, How could your servant, a mere dog, accomplish such a feat? A feat? The Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram, answered Elisha. Then Hazael left Elisha and returned to his master. When Ben-Hadad asked, what did Elisha say to you? Hazael replied, he told me that you will certainly recover. But the next day, he took a thick cloth, soaked it in water, and spread it over the king's face so that he died. Then Hazael succeeded him as king. In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, began his reign as king over Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for eight years. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for he had married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. In the time of Jehoram, Edom rebelled against Judah and set up its own king. So Jehoram went to Zair with all his chariots. The Edomites surrounded him and his chariot commanders, but he rose up and broke through by night. His army, however, fled back home. To this day, Edom has been in rebellion against Judah. Libna revolted at the same time. As for the other events of Jehoram's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the Annals of the king of, kings of Judah? Jehoram rested with his ancestors 
and was buried with them in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. In the twelfth year of Jehoram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, Azahiah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for one year. His mother's name was Athaliah, a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He followed the ways of the house of Ahab and did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was related by marriage to Ahab's family. Ahaziah went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Hazael, king of Aram, at Ramoth-Gilead. The Aramaeans wounded Joram. So King Joram returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Aramaeans had inflicted on him at Ramoth in his battle with Hazael, king of Aram. Then Azahiah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to Jezreel to see Joram, son of Ahab, because he had been wounded. The prophet Elijah summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, Tuck your cloak into your belt, take this flask of olive oil with you, and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go to him, get him away from his companions, and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, This is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and run, don't delay. So the young prophet went to Ramoth Gilead. When he arrived, he found the army officers sitting together. I have a message for you, commander, he said. For which of us, asked Jehu. For you, commander, he replied. Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anoint you king, over the Lord's people Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel, Dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. Then he opened the door and ran. This is God's word. This is our last look at uh, two kings for a while, maybe 18 months or so. And uh, so all those who read publicly uh, will be delighted that no more names and lists of names, uh, such as that one, they have to uh, uh, panic over uh, in advance. But uh, hopefully that all made sense. Follow all that list of names. <laughs> Nervous laughter. Let's, um, let's pray and uh, ask the Lord to help us as we turn and look at this account together. Hey, great God and Father, we know that you do not waste your words and you have recorded these accounts for our good as lessons for us to learn from and avoid as a revelation of who you are how you relate to this world, how you relate to your people. So, Father, as we come to your words this morning, would you help us, would you shape us so we see you rightly and we trust you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
what we have here then is judgment finally coming upon evil. That, that's what this is in uh, these two chapters of two kings. Now, all of us, uh, we want evil to be judged. We want justice to come. Now, in a sort of moral relativism that we swim in in, in the 21st century, defining something as evil or getting consensus on what is evil, I think is probably quite hard. Um, I mean, evil is a word that gets thrown around pretty quickly. Oh, Jeremy Corbyn, is he, he wears a mask to cover his evil. Uh, Theresa May, she's cruel and evil in her heart. This sort of language, he gets thrown around. But getting consensus on something that's genuinely evil is, well, I think not that common. It's why people so quickly, far too quickly, too often, you know, reach, reach for Hitler and the Nazis because, well, we all agree there, don't we? I mean, that was evil. There's no, no debate there. That, that was evil. Uh, and we in the West, particularly US, UK, we defeated evil. So we, we feel that's clear. We like that. That, that sort of, we can all agree and have consensus and get our heads around that. But not often that way these days. So part of the, we, part of, I think, perhaps what we find unsettling in um, situation in Salisbury, you know, Russian spies coming over, assassination attempt, someone dying, but that it's just so obvious. There's no attempt to really cover up their spycraft, and they seem to be acting with impunity. Let's wave to the camera. We've tried to kill someone in the UK, but we're going home, and we'll be fine, because Moscow is not going to extradite us. Already the same sort of sense of it, I, I, I guess, that the Saudis uh, and the assassination in, in Turkey and the embassy there, well, pretty badly covered up. Let's just lie and just change our lie every day. It doesn't really matter. The, the, the death squad, let's just fly them back on a commercial jet so everyone can trace uh, what they've done. And again, this, we're not covering our tracks very well here because, well, we don't really expect there to be any repercussions. I mean, Western powers may sort of, you know, give us a little bit of a slap, but they're more bothered by Iran, so, you know, we'll be all right if, you know, after a, a month or so of a bit of fuss. And again, we look upon that, and we don't like it because, well, there's clear wrongdoing. But the perpetrators, well, where's the justice? They don't expect it. They brazenly act with impunity. And we don't like it. Because deep down within all of us is the desire we want evil to be exposed. We want evil to be judged. We want evil to end. And one wonderful truth of the scriptures is it will. Now that lies deep down within all of us. If personally you, you've been on the receiving end, you want justice. And when you see none of that in this world, it gets you. But it will come in the end. The Lord's justice comes in the end. Today, then, this is, uh, as I said, our, our last look at the, um, the account, really, of Elisha in Two Kings. Uh, he dominates the narrative, really, from uh, these first eight, nine chapters. And although he gets one other mention uh, later on, pretty much his work here is done. Uh, and um, so it comes to a climax, the work of Elisha, 
in chapters 8 and 9. Now, if you have been here over the last few weeks, we've, we've said a number of times, Elisha then, for, for us today in the 21st century, he's a picture, uh, a, a, a shadow of the work of Jesus Christ. He's, in many ways, more than many Old Testament figures. We're meant to go, oh, look at that. Uh, he's anointed at the Jordan River for his ministry as the Spirit comes upon him. He feeds multitudes with barely any food. He raises uh, the dead to life. We're meant to go, oh, look, he's, he's a bit like Jesus, isn't he? Yeah, and he saves lots of people. He, we've seen him in the last few chapters in particular, saving the nation of Israel over and over again. But he does judge eventually. And here judgment comes. Again, that is a picture for us of the work of Jesus Christ who will save countless billions throughout history across the globe. But, but in the end, he will come and he'll judge as well. Now, if you, in our today's reading, um, well, I don't know if you got a little bit bogged down in the detail. Three kings and three different nations are what you need to worry about, particularly. I don't know if we've got the slide. Here are the first two. I may have seen this a little bit before, uh, and we all laugh because we recognize some of the people in the church family are on the slide. We all know that. Um, uh, if you're not certain, you can ask me afterwards. Uh, but um, the key dates was in 930 BC, the nation of Israel splits, 10 tribes are Israel in the north. You might just about be able to see that's the northern kingdom of Israel, um, and that's the, sort of the, the largest part. But then the two tribes in the south are Judah. Those are two of the nations. The other nation is Aram or Syria, modern-day Syria. Israel, Judah, Syria. Those are the three different nations. Now, Elisha has been, has been just in Israel. And so really all we've looked at in two kings has largely been in Israel. We've had a little hint of Judah in chapter 3, but not a lot. Uh, and the difference between these two lines is uh, in Israel... A king reigns, maybe his son reigns, then there's a coup, and then someone else takes over, then there's a military coup, and someone else takes over, then there's a military coup. So it's, it's lots of different groups, as opposed to Judah, one unbroken line. In Israel, the ruling family for the last 50 years has been the house of Ahab. You know, the house of Windsor, the house of Ahab has been on the throne, three different generations brothers as well, but don't worry about the detail, but for 50 years. What do we know about them? Here's what you need to know about Ahab. 1 Kings 16, Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And so, biblically, Old Testament, they are Hitler-like figures, Ahab and his family, not just because personally they're evil. You can see all sorts of accounts of uh, Ahab killing someone, you know, uh, the, sort of the, the, the worst bit uh, when he, he kills a man just to steal his vineyard, um, Naboth. But um, not just that personally they're evil, he and his family, but they lead the whole nation in evil. Therefore, there is that sense that, that Ahab and the house of Ahab, they take Israel and help the whole nation to love what is wrong and hate what is good. A distorting effect upon a whole country for 50 years. That's why they're described as so very evil. 20 years earlier, in 1 Kings 19, the Lord had said to Elijah, I am going to punish the house of Ahab for all they've done wrong. Well, 20 years later, here it comes. 
justice upon that evil house, it comes. The three things to, uh, to try and draw out, I think, the three main things that the text would want us to know, that the Lord does not rush to judgment, the Lord takes no pleasure in judgment, but the Lord will not forget judgment. Those are the three main things. All right? The Lord does not rush to judgment. He takes no pleasure in judgment, but he will not forget judgment. Let's work through them. First then, uh, this strange little account in the beginning of chapter 8, the Lord does not rush to judgment, chapter 8, 1 to 6. Now, this woman, verse, chapter 8, verse 1, now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he'd restored to life, go away with your family and stay for a while wherever you can, because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. The woman proceeded to do as the man of God said. She and her family went away and stayed in the land of Philistines for seven years. Now, we've met this woman before, if you remember, if you've been here in chapter 4. Her son died. Elijah rose, raised him up again to, uh, to life. But the focus here is not so much upon her, but in verses 4 and 5, King Joram, the house of Ahab, he is listening to all that Elisha has done. Now, if you've been here, you know King Joram has twice tried to kill Elisha. They're not mates. There is hostility. Joram, despicable man. But now here he is, and he says to Elisha's sort of servant, can you tell me about him then? This man I've been so hostile to. Tell me what he's done. Tell me what he's like. Tell me what he teaches. So verse 4 the king was talking to the servant of the man of God and had said, tell me about all the great things Elisha's done. Well, how extraordinary, verse 5. Just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to appeal to the king for her house and land. Well, how amazing. The corroborating witness walks in. And the king does the decent thing, makes sure she gets her land back. That's, that's good. Question, well, why is this here? We've gone from a sort of dramatic high politics in chapter 7, and then the rest of chapters 8 and 9 are all about, okay, judgment now finally comes. You get this strange little vignette of evil King Joram saying, well, just tell me about Elisha, will you? It's a sort of big pause in the main narrative. And it seems to be that here, here is Joram, here is your last chance. Here's the last chance for the house of Ahab. Before God's justice comes and, and you're completely wiped away, here's your last opportunity. Here is God's messenger, Elisha. What are you going to do with him? What are you going to make of him? Will you repent of the evil of your house? Will you seek to turn the nation back to the Lord, King Joram of Israel? And Joram, well, he's interested. He finds Elisha intriguing, compelling, but he doesn't do much about it. Oh, one woman he helps, but nothing else. And I think here he is uh, an example for you and for me of of what we'll encounter perhaps many times. Perhaps it's you. There are plenty of people who are interested by Jesus. 
the one who Elisha just foreshadows. And I said, oh, tell me about Jesus. Tell me about what he did. That's interesting. These miracles he performed. Oh, yeah. Some of the things he said. <laughs> Intriguing. He was certainly a character, that Jesus. And what are you going to do with him? Uh, oh, I don't know. I just find him interesting. No, no, you, you need to follow him. You need to stop living for yourself and follow him. Being interested is not enough. Striking here, even the evil, the, 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 the wicked house of King Ahab is given one last chance. See, the Lord never rushes to judgment. For 2,000 years plus since Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's not rushing to judgment. There is time. But being interested is not enough. You, you do have to trust in Jesus. But the Lord doesn't rush to judgment. In one sense, it's quite similar, I guess, in verses 7 to 15 of chapter 8. The Lord takes no pleasure in judgment. We're jumping countries, okay? From Israel, King Joram, now not on this picture, but uh, we're in Syria, or Aram, uh, the king of uh, Aram there, who also is a, is a wicked man. He's, he's invaded Israel numerous times. He also has tried to kill Elisha. He's not super popular, Elisha, with all the monarchs uh, of the region. So, uh, you know, you've tried to kill me as well. Well, you should get together. You've got that in common. Um, but, uh, and he goes. But, so there's a bit of act of bravery here. Chapter 8, verse 7. Elisha went to Damascus, then as now, the capital of Aram, Syria. And Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was ill. When the king was told, the man of God has come all the way up here, he said to Hazael, his servant, take a gift with you and go and meet the man of God, consult the Lord through him, ask him, will I recover from this illness? Well, this is pretty brave of Elisha. Again, in chapter 6, Ben-Hadad has tried to kill him. Now Ben-Hadad thinks, well, there's something about this Elisha and his God. I just couldn't kill him last time. There's something about him. Maybe I... Well, maybe I ought to ask a little bit more about Elisha and his God. But any needs, in any case, I'm desperate. So I'm going to send, well, verse 9, 40 camel loads of all the finest wares of Damascus, a shed load of cash, uh, and see if I can buy my health back, as it were. So Hazael, go, go and ask. And so that happens. Hazael goes and stands before, verse 9, goes and stands before Elisha. Uh, and says, your son, well, I guess there's a mark of deference, but your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to ask, will I recover from this illness? Well, we get a curious response in verse 10. Elisha answered, go and say to him, you'll certainly recover. Nevertheless, the Lord has revealed to me that he will in fact die. Well, there's a super little footnote which tells you, the Hebrew at this point is a little bit complicated. Uh, but um, I think best understood, Elisha is saying to Hazael, you can go and tell the king, oh, the illness won't kill you. You've got man flu or something like that. The illness is not going to kill you, but you will die. And then he just stares at Hazael. And he clearly unnerves him. Verse 11, Hazael's embarrassed. And then, well, then Elisha starts crying. Verse 12, why are you crying? Why is my Lord weeping, asks Hazael. Oh, because I know the harm you'll do to the Israelites, he answered. You'll set fire to their 
fortified places. You'll kill their young men with the sword. You'll dash their little children to the ground. You'll rip open their pregnant women. Well, how could your servant, how could I, a, a mere dog, accomplish such a feat? Well, you're going to kill the king and take his place. That's how. And Jehazel goes, oh, brilliant. Uh, and off he runs and, and does just that. So he goes back to his master. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The illness isn't going to kill you, king, but I will. And uh, kills him. And Hazael takes the throne. So he's a happy man, I guess. But what about Elisha? He's there in tears. Because as God's prophet, as God's mouthpiece, he's saying, okay, judgment is now going to fall upon Israel. This nation that's been led into immorality, rejected the Lord. It's going to come to an end. But it makes me cry. Elisha is revealing for us, as the Lord's prophet, how God feels. Look, I can't allow injustice. I can't allow evil to go on forever. Judgment has to come, but, but it makes me cry. Can you say that reverently of the Lord? In one sense, it shouldn't be a surprise to us. Because God says much the same elsewhere. Have we got Ezekiel 33? You've got to struggle to read that. But uh, Ezekiel 33, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. I have no pleasure in judging wickedness, says the Lord. Or Isaiah 28, the understanding of this message of judgment um, will bring sheer terror. The Lord will do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task of judgment. I don't like judging, says the Lord. It's particularly my own people. It's alien to me. It's strange work. Well, when God walks this planet in the man Jesus Christ, Luke 19, okay, simply as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but it's now hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, hem you in on every side, and Jerusalem's destroyed. And Jesus weeps. He says, Jerusalem, you are wicked and you'll reject me, but I... I cry for you. So the Lord will bring justice and he will judge all that's evil, but judgment brings him no pleasure, he says. And the Lord says to us, look, mercy and grace, that, that is my default setting. That is my norm. It, judgment is my strange work. And the judgment upon any person that I've made well, it brings tears. Did you pick up in the paper last uh, in May last year? It was in uh, in Australia, in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, it was a horrible case. Shane Brown. Shane Brown was a man in his twenties. Uh, he and his older brother had never really got on very well. But anyway, uh, his, his brother, both of them had a sort of history of drug addiction. But his brother was high one day. Came back to the parental home, 
and uh, his brother, older brother, was threatening violently his mom. Shane Brown stepped in, and rather than just protect his mom, got a little carried away and murdered his brother, or killed his brother. I mean, and was devastated. And what a mess for the family. The parents, well, yeah, but you, you're protecting mom, but you, you killed our only other child. And so, I mean, what does that do to a family? The judge was a man called Justice Michael Croucher. He sentenced Shane Brown to prison. And the judge wept in his chair uh, and said, justice requires that I sentence you. A whole nation, in many ways, requires that I sentence you. But I'm conscious as I do so, I, I, I rob parents of their only other child. And I see before me a man who is genuinely broken by what he's done and knows he's ruined his family. And I weep for you and your family. But justice must come. It's a picture, a vague picture. But it gives this sense of how the Lord then feels. I weep over judgment. It gives me no pleasure. It is my strange work. I long much more for people to turn away from their evil to repent of all they've done wrong and, and return to me and make them. But justice will come, even if the Lord takes no pleasure in it. The Lord doesn't rush to judgment. The Lord takes no pleasure in judgment, but it will come. Finally, verse 9 then, the Lord will not forget judgment. Here then is Elisha's last act, and we're back in Israel. We're back in Israel. And it's a slightly strange thing. I don't know if you follow what happens here. Chapter 9, verse 1. The prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, tuck your cloak into your belt, take this flask of olive oil when you get with you and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go to him, get him away from his companions, take him into an inner room, take his flask, pour the oil on his head and declare, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. So Elisha doesn't do it himself. Presumably he's just too well known. If he's just, he, as soon as he walks into town, everyone goes, oh, it's Elisha. Uh, so he sends one of his uh, uh, men to do the job, but says, okay, can you anoint Jehu and tell him the Lord says, yeah, you're going to have a coup against the king. The end has come for Joram and the house of Jehu. So, excuse me, the king, uh, Joram and the house of Ahab. And Jehu, you're the man. The Lord says, yeah, carry out this coup. It's pretty obvious what's taking place. So verse 6, end of verse 6. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. So it is the God's plan. I anoint you, Jehu, king over the Lord's people Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master. And I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I'll cut off every, from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. So here, here justice descends. We've been waiting for this for 20 years. We've got 1 Kings 19. Here's what the Lord had told Elisha's boss, or predecessor, Elijah. This is what will happen. Anoint Hazael king over Aram. Tick just taken place. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. Tick. 
that's now taken place. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, to succeed you as prophet. Well, that happened a while ago. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Well, this is always going to happen. Perhaps the surprise is it's taken so long. But finally, after 20 years, and for Elisha, after eight chapters of saving, saving, saving Israel, despite their wickedness, saving them from external invasion, well, Elisha says, well, enough. It's time for the Lord's judgment. So these whole chapters, chapters 8 and 9, it's just, you've been waiting since 1 Kings 19, and now, now it comes. And we haven't read on, but chapter 9, yes, Joram is killed. The wicked queen mother Jezebel is killed. That's it. The despicable house of Ahab is dealt with. Judgment will come. The Lord will not forget it. But in the middle, in chapter 8, there is just this wonderful note of hope. Tell me, just uh, to chapter 8. Uh, and verses uh, 16 to the end of the chapter, it's all we're back in then Judah. So it's the third little kingdom. Okay? Judah we're in, in chapter 8, 16 to uh, the end. And you get these uh, two kings. So we've got the slide again. Uh, Jehoram gets, why, you know, no great ingenuity with names was there at the time, but um, that's just the way it is. Oh, you know, it's like Jack in the 21st century. Uh, you know, there's no great variety. But anyway, Jehoram, he's only just upon the screen because he's so wicked we couldn't even get his chin on. Um, it's Jehoram uh, and then his son Ahaziah. But look what's said about them. They're in the line of David, this unbroken line of father to son, father to son, father to son, father to son. Unlike Israel, which has been coup and military coup and, and murder, it's an unbroken chain in Judah. It's the better of the two. But what are we told about Judah in verse 16 of chapter 8? In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, began his reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for eight years. But here's the salient point. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. No, 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 no. Now, Judah's the good bit. You know, Judah's the good kingdom. You know, Judah's just had Asa, he was a great king, and Jehoshaphat, he was a pretty good king, and, and they have good kings in Judah. But now you've got Jehoram, and he says, oh, I like what Israel does. And he copies Israel, and he marries Ahab's daughter. And we couldn't be much clearer, could we? He's just like Ahab, is what the text is saying. But do you notice the difference, verse 19? Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. Nevertheless, you read this and you think, oh no, Judah's just as bad, just as evil. Nevertheless, despite that, even though they're wicked, it's different in Judah. Why is it different in Judah? Verse 19, God had promised. God had promised. That's why it's different. All the way back to Samuel 7, God has promised. He said, there will always be a descendant of David 
on the throne of Judah, always. So even you get these terrible kings, Jehoram, Ahaziah, but then after that, we're back to some equality again, just about. There's always a king on the house, in the line of David over the house of Judah. And of course, you get to the pages of the New Testament, and there's still a king in the line of David who rules, because the ultimate descendant in the same line it's Jesus. Look, they are particularly wicked, the house of Ahab. It is a despicable regime. But, of course, we know that one day all of us stand before the Lord. We all have to give an account for what we've done. We all have to uh, record, give an account for how we've lived, for all the mistakes we've made, the evil we've done. It's not of the same degree, perhaps, no, but we all give an account for what we've done. Nevertheless, as long as there's a king in the line of David that we can turn to and put our trust in Jesus Christ, the Lord says, no, he has taken punishment for you. You, you can be forgiven. So that's the king we have. That's the only hope we have. But Jesus came 2,000 years ago and he says... I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I don't rush to judgment. Now is the time you can put your faith in me. and know you're safe. I know heaven is guaranteed for you. But justice will come. I will return. And Jesus would say, look, judgment's my strange work. Grace, mercy, forgiveness. Those are my preference. I offer them to you. but I will return and judge. So don't prevaricate forever if you're wondering what to do. Don't be just intrigued. Trust in me. The Lord, he doesn't rush to judgment. He takes no pleasure in judgment, but it will come. For those of us who have seen great injustice, that's an enormous encouragement. But the hope for you and me is not that we are given justice for how we live ourselves. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, the King in the line of David. Let me lead us in prayer together. Our great God and Father, in many ways there are things we prefer to read, things we find easier to read in the Bible don't require any sort of historical background or, or, or knowledge or understanding. But Father, these accounts are here to prepare us, to inform us, to deepen our understanding of the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for how you reveal yourself. We, we praise you as a God who judges evil. We're thankful that this is a world where justice will prevail. We thank you for also reminding us, revealing that you're not one who delights in judging, in punishing. It is your strange work. You take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You don't rush to judgment. You give us time to return to you. You much prefer it that this will be a world that returns to you.
And Father, thank you there's a way that we can do that. There's a way for us in this room. There's a way for those across the whole planet to return to you in Jesus Christ. Thank you that because you've promised that there is forgiveness in him and you have promised that he will always be upon the throne, we could be certain of that forgiveness. Father, would, if we've never done so, would we turn to him while there is still time? We ask it in his name. Amen.